Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 43, where we're traveling back to 1985 and the 39th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Stephen Albert, for his symphony number one, River Run. All right, Andrew. So, Stephen Albert, uh, what do you know about Stephen Albert? Uh, very little <laughs> about Stephen Albert. Yeah, um, I've heard a couple of his chamber music things. Like the, I write the program notes for Summerfest here in Kansas City every summer, and they've done some of his music. But that was about all. Very limited experiences with Stephen Albert. What about you? Uh, pretty much the same in terms of hearing his music. I did know because I was a comp major in 1992 i think i was a yeah freshman uh at that point he had died and he was kind of seen as an Mm up-and-coming composer from what i remember and there was a big splash about a concerto concerto for yo-yo ma and so at that time yo-yo ma was very famous and and so i i didn't know anything about the composer but i knew that he was that he died kind of unexpectedly so we'll talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. but in terms of the music nothing very little yeah Yeah. Well, maybe we should begin to tell the story. Telling the story. So Albert is one of this, we kind of got a a trend going in the Polish. So we've seen this happen before. There seems to be a trend going in this kind of neo-romantic, right? So we talked back in the late 1970s, all the way up to the last episode with Bernard Rands, we talked about this kind of neo-romantic movement in composition. And Albert very much fits in that kind of category of one of these composers who fought against serialism <laughs> and won triumphant, this, this kind of narrative that's, that's emerged um, that he was very much telling. But he's one of these composers who grew up learned about serialism, rejected it in the 1970s, and began composing in a kind of fresh, new, romantic way. So we're seeing, again, a a Pulitzer trend. We'll see this happen again and again, that the previous winners get on, and they appreciate people who compose like them, so the Mm -hmm. next person, right? I think this is exactly what we're seeing with with Albert again, but he's he's known as a neo-romantic composer. Very much so, and somebody interested in uh, pieces with text or with Mm -hmm. big textual hefty references as this piece does when we talk about it uh he was also his training he was very kind of a lot of good opportunities studied with Eli Siegmeister now there's a name that I remember from piano uh like American music and he wrote a lot of piano music Mm -hmm. that was in etude books and stuff like that and then he studied with Bernard Rogers at Eastman uh he went and got a degree at uh the Philadelphia Musical Academy and study with George Rockberg at University of Pennsylvania. So uh, a pretty good pedigree. Well, here. he won the Rome Prize yes, and the, he won two Guggenheim. So he was he is in the establishment. Very much so. Very much in the establishment. Yeah, very much on the way up. Uh, and then, as we said, uh, taught, di- well, we have very, there's a very interesting relationship mm-hmm. to teaching that we'll get to, but he taught at Smith College at Northampton, Massachusetts, as well as other places. So we'll get into all that. But uh, what strikes me most about him is that that, that disavowal of mm-hmm. the serial music. And there's a quote here. This is from the Naxos recording on the 
piece itself, but as Albert's own aesthetic beliefs were formed through years of experimentation with various media, little is known of his work with electronic and amplified instruments, including the use of the syncet. Have you heard of the syncet? I've never heard of the syncet before this. The first portable voltage-controlled synthesizer. Albert's conductor friend Joseph Fierst recounts how Stephen drove a small Volkswagen station wagon that was not really safe due to its undersized <laughs> wheels so he could carry the syncet and then sold it and started to write completely different music. Uh, he felt that the audience needed to be part of things. And mm -hmm. we've seen that again, as you said, uh, the theme here. And his musical idols, we, we re read in a lot of places, were Bartok and Mahler. And right. more on that later. Have, have a lot to say about the Mahler connection, yes, I think, definitely. as we begin. But also, we, you would think, because of this pedigree, where he trained, who he trained with, the awards that he won, that he would have been an academic composer. Like Very so many much. we've talked about. He would mm -hmm. be teaching in a university somewhere. And he actually did not want to do that. In fact, this is our favorite quote, I think, of the entire day. Um, but he said, thinking about even teaching in higher education, he said, I feel like I'm in prison. The smell of polished wood, the floors being waxed and all that. So he turned his back on teaching. And in fact, instead of teaching, he made his money by selling stamps. Mm. This is my favorite little factoid about Stephen Albert, is that during this uh, time period, um, he began to make money by out of his home for 10 years selling stamps. He said, I did it for 10 years while composing every day and I loved it. I had privacy and I didn't have to worry about institutional questions, committee meetings, or <laughs> academic politics. That sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't that also sound like another Pulitzer Prize winning composer who had a big day job. And well, and he compares himself explicitly to Charles E. Ives. Correct. He does. Correct. And I think we'll talk more about Charles E. Ives oh, when we talk yeah. about the piece as oh, well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, very much. I mean, it's interesting to, to see the way that he's positioning himself in many ways, building the story of himself anti-academia, which lets him say that he's anti-kind of modernism, serialism, mm. that he's embracing the audience, that he's about emotion, that he's about communication, that he's very much drawing this kind of story mm. around himself that then is very effective and used to sell his music in many ways. If you read the reviews that we read about River Run when it first premiered, this is the story people are telling, and it's a very effective story. It is. I mean, thinking back, to have we had... Many we really haven't had many composers who are independent, truly independent. Mm -hmm. At least, well, there are maybe a few, but yeah, generally not. No, I mean Certainly Ned, not in the Ned last Roram, we Ned talked Roram, about yeah. Aaron Copeland, but they yeah. are few and far between. Most of them, as we said, are students of, of previous winners. They, they become winners, and, and then yeah. their students win because it's just a kind of unbroken line. So he is yeah. interesting in that way that he doesn't have that kind of academic situation. Although, after he wins the Pulitzer, he does get a job at Juilliard. So True. That, that worked out pretty well. It worked out pretty well for him. And we should say, obviously because this is the big issue, is that he really was a composer on the upswing, he was. I think, and was, it was tragically cut short on December 27th, 1992. He was in a car accident on Cape Cod and mm -hmm. Yeah, it was quite a tragic thing because he was only, well, he was born in 1941, so he was only, what, 50? 51. 51, yeah. So that's like a prime age for a composer, especially who just had premieres with New York Philharmonic and Rostropovich for this piece and Yo-Yo Ma and all these these big names. So And he'll come up again because a few years after this, he's a finalist for the Pulitzer. So, I mean, if you look at these kind of, what, six, seven years... 
before he after he wins the Pulitzer, uh, before he he tragically dies. I mean, there's a huge, huge kind of explosion of interest in his music, and who knows what would have happened if he had actually not died in 1991. Yeah, it's very sad. Well, let's go behind the notes of River Run. Behind the Notes. All right, Andrew, I need to start with this question here. Okay. So this is about James Joyce. Inspired by uh, James okay, Joyce. Okay, yes. I wouldn't say it's about Not James about, Joyce. Th- thank you for the correction. <laughs> His other piece that he wrote called Tree Stone is a song cycle that actually is uh, a song, as obviously mm-hmm. text excerpted from Finnegan's Wake. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, how's your James Joyce reading? Got a lot of his. <laughs> well, for this, I just have to read yeah. the first line. <laughs> That's what he's taking it from. River Run is the first word of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. Oh. So it's the very beginning. No, my experience with Finnegan's Wake, and this is just betrays my background. Uh, as soon as I got to Finnegan's Wake and saw that this was inspired by that piece, the only thing I could think of was John Cage. Yes, exactly. So John Cage wrote these famous uh, mazostics, these poems that he created, which the central word, if you read from top to bottom, is James Joyce, and then <laughs> the rest of the text is kind of fit around that. But he wrote hundreds of mazostics yes. called Reading Through Finnegan's Wake. And then he turned that into a piece called Roratorio, mm-hmm. and this is my experience with Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> I've read Portrait of the Artist's Young Man. I've read, read other James Joyce. I've never read Finnegan's Wake. So my experience of Finnegan's Wake is filtered through John Cage, which is a bizarre filter, I admit, Yeah, but that's what I'm coming to with. Yeah, I, I, that's a lot more than I've ever done. I, I don't know a thing about, I just know it's incredibly difficult. And mm-hmm. what, when I was reading about or preparing for this, saw that some scholars say that's the most difficult book in the English language. And so eh, we'll let other people get into that. But I'm glad that Stephen Albert found it very interesting. So. Well, but to me what's so interesting, and thinking back to this narrative that we were talking about, yeah is that Albert has created this story of him connecting with the audience. And one of the ways that he's doing this, I mean, you talked about Tree Stone and you know, other pieces, is that he's kind of returned to the whole idea of the pastoral. And there's a great article that, mm. that we can link to in the show notes by Holly Watkins talking about this kind of resurgence of the idea of the pastoral. Yeah. Um, but this idea of we'll connect to people by connecting to experiences they have. And so although it's not telling a story, the symphony, what it is doing is using the idea of the river, the idea of nature, something that most people have experience with that didn't connect with the audience. Mm-hmm. And in that way, so it's a four-movement symphony, basically, and it has the river as kind of this through line mm-hmm. or a red thread, maybe. A if red you thread, will. that's right. And uh, it, it's kind of talking metaphorically or metaphysically about life mm-hmm. and the different stages of life. So you look at a river and sometimes it's very still. And that could be a peaceful, contented moment. And then other times it's really roaring mm-hmm. and rushing when your life is full of turmoil and something's happening. So it very but you much have like kind of these recurring ostinatis mm-hmm. that just continue and continue and flow through. And so that kind of, they return. And so even though it's in four movements, you do have these connections that you hear throughout all four movements. Yeah, exactly. So what, what are the names of those four movements? Because they're very evocative. They are. The first movement is called Rain Music, which is, again, trying to, mm-hmm. you know, depicting rain on the river. Uh, the next one is Leafy Speefing. I love that <laughs> That's name. That's a great one, yeah. That sounds like a James Joyce kind of construction. Then we have Beside the Rivering Waters and River's End. So the river is very much the theme mm-hmm. throughout here. And we should say this piece was 
commissioned by the Sidney L. Heckinger Foundation for the National Symphony Orchestra and performed by Mis- uh, Mis- Mstislav Rostropovich, a very famous cellist mm-hmm. and conductor. And it was a big, big piece. And so the question was, Albert received a call stating, Slava wants to see you about writing a piece for the band, to which he replied, who's Slava? What band? <laughs> <laughs> and so then uh, the, Rostropovich suggested the work be a mass, but Albert suggested a symphony instead, and the re- result was this symphony. So it's the metaphor. It, it's still, mm-hmm. there's a kind of a, not religious, but there's a spiritual quality there is, there to this piece. Is. So it wasn't too far off, I guess. It's also a large piece. 33 minutes. So we've been talking about over the past you know, decade or so, looking at the Pulitzers. Um, I mean, we had the Ellen Tafe's Woolwich Symphony, mm-hmm. but that was not even this big. I mean, this, no, is no. A, this is a massive, massive piece that's winning. It is. And it is massive in every way. And so I think this is one of the ways you can kind of see the connection to Gustav Mahler right? So the cycles that are happening here, the connection to nature, and then it's not a Mahler length, right? It's about half the size of a Mahler (laughs) symphony at most. But it does have a lot of those kinds of extremes and using unusual combinations of instruments to create new textures and new timbres. It does. There's, it's very, uh, you know, I'll say a very American in a lot of ways too, because of its collage effect. There's a lot of mixtures of things. There's borrowing. There's Mm -hmm. actually a tune in here which has a great name. I'll, we'll get a, bit, a little bit later. Uh, but there's borrowing of styles. So there's marches. There's, okay, so... Okay, okay. Well, right, I I'll, have to play it. Okay, because well, you brought this hear up. something. Yeah. I have to play this up. So this is the beginning of the third movement, and I want you to see if it sparks a connection of another composer. So this is the beginning of this uh, third movement. Sounds like a Mahler outtake. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, to me, it sounds almost like your favorite Charles E. Ives. I mean, strip out the strings and just have the winds do this kind of jaunty, kind of dissonant, angular little march thing that sounds kind of like it's, I mean, it's very Americana. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not a bad, uh, that is actually a good combination because. Fans of Ives or Mahler will know that Robert P. Morgan wrote two mm-hmm. articles about, and so did uh, Leon Botstein, articles connecting Ives and Mahler together. Right. And so there's a lot of similarities, especially in their use of existing styles. And mm-hmm. bum, bum, dun, dun, it does it's, sort of it's, it's got a kind sound. Of Ives jauntiness. Ives to jauntiness. It. <laughs> it does. It does. And then, but yet with the Mahler orchestration. With the Mahler orchestration, yeah. And yeah. the fact that he uses, I mean, the winds are oh, yeah. so present in this symphony. Yes. It's almost like it's a wind band piece with added orchestra, added strings. I think that's true. And like a lot of our predecessors in recent years, there's a big emphasis on color and Mm -hmm. timbre, and it's very expressive, very dynamic, uh, very coloristic. And – Motivic, uh, so there are there are melodies. There are actually quite a few, mm-hmm. and it's cyclical. So yes. what starts in rain music in the first movement does come back towards the end, and these are little motivic tunes that are quite memorable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that first movement has this uh, 
motif that plays at the beginning and then it returns at the end. It's just flopped and, and played backwards. But whenever it started playing, it reminded me of something. So I'm going to play you just the end where those those that motive comes back. You can really hear it. And I'm going to play you what it kind of sparked in my mind. I'm making all these connections. As oh, I'm listening so to it because there's yeah. so many things he's connecting to. Okay, so that's the end of the first movement. Yes. With these kind of, I've, all the time after listening to this going, do, 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 it's like it's yeah. in my head, but this yeah. is what it made me think of. that is i'm guessing it's some movie music it's john williams it's the ending of oh. close encounters of the third kind oh okay all right right there's yeah the, i mean you can definitely hear just yeah. this dum bum 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 with a the swirling orchestra underneath now williams is much more tonal than sure. albert is here um but i think that the, the kind of idea is the same so that's the ending of close encounters mm. of the third kind as you're going into the end credits it's a good connection, and very much. It's there's a lot of building in this piece, mm-hmm. like that example, and uh, there's just a lot of uh, development and it, it, like a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Everything's constantly changing, and yet you have these big swells. Well, I think very that, romantic. That fourth movement, yeah, yeah it just builds to this huge swell, and after the end of swell, every swell he just cuts off immediately and drops mm-hmm. down to like two instruments. Yeah, and then he does the same thing again and builds and builds and builds, and each time it gets just bigger until you get to that final kind of explosion, and then it dies away and kind of ends quietly, not the way I expected it to. It does. Um, But yeah, it is this process of swell, bigger swell, bigger swell, instead of having like a rondo form you might expect there at the end. (laughs) Right. No, very much so. Uh, I think the piece also uh, takes advantage of the orchestration, as we Mm -hmm. mentioned, the shimmering kinds of sounds, a lot of percussion. And that's, again, in keeping with this neo-romantic connection that we've seen before. Uh, And mixture of tonality and atonality mm-hmm. it's it, absolutely when it first started i thought oh whoa this is a like a yeah. a minor triad or something it's like oh this sounds pretty tonal and then it goes you know meanders away but it's it again constantly flowing like kaleidoscope well it's a lot like we talked about bernard rand's last time so when we say neo-romantic i think in our heads we go oh it's going to be brahms yeah, yeah warmed yeah. over brahms right but they know they're living in the 1980s yes and so the chordal structures they're using are much more uh, advanced. They don't always go where you expect them to go. No. Some of the choral structures, I mean, even there, I was just playing the end of the first movement. It doesn't really resolve. It just kind of stops. So there are a lot of those kinds of moments that even when you hear neo-romantic are not going to necessarily mean it's going to be let your ears lay back in a lazy no. chair, right? <laughs> no, Charles. <laughs> well, with that in mind, maybe we should see what everyone else thought about this. Hit or miss?
All right, let's just talk first about the critical uh, yes. reception. So it premiered, as we said, with the National Symphony. So the Washington Post the next day, Joseph McClellan was the reviewer, and he said it was a brilliant symphony, evocative, artfully constructed, and immediately communicative. Wow. So I'm High a, praise. Amazing praise, but yeah. I'm also interested in that kind of last phrase, immediately communicative. Ooh, yeah. Right, it's almost like he's putting a, a knife in the back of modern music saying, look, you can communicate. You don't have to do this, mm-hmm. furthering that kind of narrative. Hmm. Um, Walter Price in the LA Times said that uh, Albert's 1985 Pulitzer-winning symphony inspired by the works of James Joyce is conservatively tonal, even romantic. <laughs> His style is eclectic, though clearly the Stravinsky of Firebird and Petrushka influenced him. Albert is certainly a master of lush orchestration if his melodic material is not particularly distinguished. Hmm. So a little bit more lukewarm saying... Yeah. Amazing orchestration. Not Schubertian melodies you're going to walk away right. singing. Forgot to mention the name of that one melody that you're going to hear a lot during the Ives uh, section. Ives Mahler section is called Mush Mush, an Irish folk song. That's a great name. Which is appropriate for James Joyce here. So, but yeah. yeah, so, so maybe, maybe the critic didn't know Mush Mush. Must not well. know Mush Mush. <laughs> Or doesn't think much about Irish melodies. Uh, no, no, I guess not. But, I mean, a very positive, positive. critical reception. Yeah. And clearly, from the very beginning, people pointed out a lot of the things that we were just discussing in terms of the, the orchestration and the colors that he's using. I mean, that's the most immediate thing that you're going to hear. Um, and then also, I think, in some ways, just the construction, the fact that it does hold together. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's a kaleidoscope that just kind of veers off all over the place. There's a clear mm-hmm. through line. And there's also one more... Review by Alan Cozen, noted Beatles scholar, who just wrote a very good book called The McCartney Legacy. But anyway, (laughs) just to plug that in, just to plug that (laughs) from The New York Times in 1991, uh, basically gives you a little bit about each movement. But he says, all told, it is a pleasing work that gives the orchestra a full and democratic workout. I like that democratic workout. I like that because it is true that everyone gets their moment to shine. Yeah, definitely. So well, what did the jury say? Well, let's see what the jury said. Now, you're not going to be surprised at at least one member of this jury, given the type of piece we have here. So the work was premiered by Rostropovich, blah, blah, blah. Symphony River Run is a powerful and compelling work, bold in gesture and superb in its handling of an exceptionally rich orchestral palette. A striking aspect of this piece is its masterful synthesis of diverse musics, drawing upon the pluralism of the American musical tradition. Boy, did they hear our podcast? I I mean, (laughs) (laughs) they've been listening to us. Yeah, pretty good. And then they talked about the jury runner up with songs that will be, someone will be talking about in a few years, songs of innocence and of experience by William Bolcom. So that's coming soon. So who was on this committee? Well, the chair was Richard Wernick, former winner, Mm -hmm. Alan Kriegman, music and dance critic, Washington Post, and then Joseph Schwantner. Which that is so, yes. so in line. I mean, exactly. This made me think of Schwantner me so too. many times. <laughs> me too. So, yeah, so that was that's a fitting jury. Yeah. And it said, the jury received an impressive number of applications for the 1985 prize, mark, making a total of 119 compositions. So it's really beginning to grow. Yeah, yeah. A lot more submissions that are happening at this time period. Definitely. So pretty positive overall. Very positive. Well, we always like to see if we know how the person learns about the award. Yep. So uh, Stephen Albert said it was complete surprise uh, <laughs> to him. But he said that the Pulitzer Prize was like a catalytic agent. Before that, I needed rain in my career, but that was like lightning. Ooh, 
colorful uh, description there. Yeah, very much River Run description. Yeah. But it, it did. I mean, it allowed him to stop selling stamps <laughs> and become a full-time composer. I love that. And earn his living for the last years of his life with these major commissions that he was getting because of the impact of this particular symphony. Yeah. So again, for those uh, keeping score at home, this is one in the positive Pulitzer Prize column, not not somebody who... Not prizes are for boys. Prizes are for boys. He was very, very appreciative of getting the Pulitzer. Very much so. Well, so what do we think about River Run? Andrew, what's your take? Hit or miss? Uh, this is actually a big hit for me. I was not prepared for this symphony when I sat down and listened to it. I thought, oh, great, it's going to be another <laughs> symphony, neo-romantic symphony, mid-1980s. 33 minutes. 33 minutes. I was riveted. Um, the second movement lost me a little bit, mm. but then that band kicks back into the third yeah. movement, and I was right <laughs> back in it. And then that fourth movement just swept me away. I've listened to it a couple of times, just even this morning, because uh, I was just thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with it. So big thumbs up for me. What about you? Completely agree. I, I was, again, unexpected. We, we always joke at the end of our, when we're finished recording, we say, oh, who's next? Oh, well, <laughs> this is going to be a rough one. And But as soon, from the get-go, this one really grabbed me. And... Yeah, beautiful colors and sounds, uh, melodic grip is gripping. The, the melody, the melodic writing mm-hmm. is really gripping. Uh, my interest didn't really flag at all. I love the first and fourth movements particularly, and then mm-hmm. the, the march too. Uh, but it, it may raise another question to me. It made me think, and this is again a topic, ongoing topic you and I have, but these days there's such emphasis on new composers mm-hmm. and we always want to hear the newest thing and a lot of these people i mean i hate to say it you hear it once and then it's gone you don't mm-hmm. hear it again here's a piece that's not old that really deserves to it be played does. and i would love to hear this live yes and you know if you've got a Mahler symphony or Mahler song something this would be a great thing to fit with it or it could fit with a lot of things well i like the we didn't mention that the original performance the premiere performance it was paired with beethoven's pastoral symphony correct which i think is just a beautiful pairing yeah a a very powerful and dynamic program yeah exactly so i I, i'm a lot one of the things i judge is does the piece that we listen to make me want to know more about the composer and it did Mm -hmm. i went and immediately listened to the cello concerto and was really interested in that so i think this is an unsung forgotten work that really needs to be brought back. Absolutely. Well, that is it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you also find links, a short bibliography. You can read more about Stephen Albert. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H. Pulitzers for links between episodes. And we want to do a shout-out. We have a new rating on Apple Podcasts, The Raider Man. Uh, said these guys are great, well-organized podcasts and significant scholarship on each person. Great for musicians and graduate students <gasps> studying for comps. Excellent. So thanks to Raider Man. We appreciate anyone else leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help people find the show. Finally, join us next episode when we'll discuss the first winning piece written for completely a wind group, George Pearl's Wind Quintet 4. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.